Ultra. Last time on Legacy Door. Whatever request the legatees have planned will be superseded. Your thread is about to be loosed, and you will want our help to secure it again. Dan looked to his right and a little down to see the young woman he had not looked at last time. She definitely was not his cousin Vanessa, not even a grown-up version. Then Abby stepped forward just as the heavy outer door opened. Abby, how did he know her name? How could he have forgotten her name? So you're here, Mr. Strauss. Let's go to the den, shall we, and find out what this is all about. You know what it's about. My supervising partner, Louise, had assigned me to defend a new client on referral from Boehner and Jocks, and that client was Jonathan Strauss held for the murder of his daughter Abigail and her companion Harrison Reese. No wonder Herndon had been sweating. Legacy Door, Episode 1.2, Beginnings. Saturday, October 7th, 2017. Us. 2.11 a.m. It was no surprise to us when the legatee returned, and he knew it. He knocked perfunctorily before entering the office we were using to gather information about Earth's current climate, population, fossil fuel use, health status, and public opinion about extraterrestrial life. We looked up as he abased himself and could see on his face that he did not know how to begin. "'You have formulated your request.' We began helpfully. Yes, as you foretold. A sudden event has created a situation in which your help is vital. We are still compiling the details, but the boon would begin within the next few days. Very well, we responded, as there seemed nothing more to be said. Although... Added the legatee, gesturing with his hat... It seems as if you could set the schedule yourself, since you already know what's going to happen. We smiled, and were a little disappointed that it did not have quite the same impact as last time. Nevertheless, we deigned to say, We are only here to research and assist. All the choices are yours. Ah, there it was, in his eyes, far behind the sardonic detachment. Suppressed, burning hatred. Good. Now we truly had him. Daniel Lutcher, 2.19 a.m. Dan sat dozily in the back of an automobile whose owner earned money by periodically surrendering control of it, and herself, to a phone application. Dan watched the streetlights go by without really watching anything. Even interacting with his handheld computer was momentarily beyond the limits of his ragged concentration. One explanation for his inattentiveness was that the smiling staff at Bar Amu had plied him with miniature versions of their many specialty drinks, with the object of influencing his review of the place. He imbibed the alcohol, but had been more intoxicated by the other young journalists and their plus-ones. The part of his brain geared toward interaction with his peers had been underutilized of late, and exercising it gave Dan pleasure and helped to rouse him from the fatalistic trance the forgotten dream had inflicted upon him. 
Unfortunately, that energizing sensation reversed his normally quiet persona into one-sided conversationalist, and those he interacted with had gradually migrated away without Dan being entirely aware of it. By the end of the event, he was voicing his musings to the servers and assistant managers while they made ready to close for the night, he no longer being able to perceive that they had fewer common interests with him than his colleagues did, and less reason to sincerely enjoy his company. When I was on my way here, I was thinking that the Irish idea was pretty played out, he said to a handsome, clean-shaven young man whose green and gold name tag said Carlos. But you guys do a nice version of it. It's got authenticity. Not that I would know, I guess. Uh, Brenda and I were going to go there, but we never did. Carlos was polite enough to nod and say, Hmm. At that. Fortunately for them both, he valued Dan's stream of chatter because it quieted his thoughts about his own life. Hearing himself mention Brenda caused Dan's brain to shift gears, and his voice was more melancholy when he looked toward the front window and added, Brenda was... a singer. Carlos finished a table, looked at Dan, and voiced the mildest possible curiosity. She stopped singing? The unanticipated reply further scattered Dan's thoughts. His mouth opened, releasing a slow trickle of words. Uh, no. We're not together anymore. Carlos sighed at himself and looked Dan full in the face. For the first time that night, both of them were thinking exactly the same thing. And the thing was, why am I having this conversation? That's tough, man said Carlos, giving Dan's shoulder a casual squeeze. Calculated, but still sincere. After a moment, he walked past him to the next table. Yeah. Dan took a deep breath to clear his mind. I should get out of here. He said. And again, he and Carlos were in full inner agreement. Good night, Dan said. To all and sundry. Carlos gave another nod. Sympathetic but not extending the farewell. A couple muted voices from other points of the big room said, Good night, back, in a professionally personable way. Dan walked out into the sticky night air and slipped into a reactive travel trance even deeper than his previous one. His conscious perception was limited to the recurring play of lights on his touchscreen, on the street, and now on passing automobiles. Dan's application-directed driver stopped her car in front of an old, double-lot, four-story apartment building in a neighborhood that had spent decades teetering on the edge of middle-class respectability. Dan mumbled his gratitude to the driver and was at the door before he realized that he could not have named or described her for any quantity of money. Even a description of the car would have been guesswork. Dan pulled out his keyring, used the first key of a sub-ring to open the front door, and entered the wide, glassed-in atrium. The walls of old tiles sported dull brass boxes which had seen the daily insertion and extraction of decades of mail. Dan used a smaller key on the same ring to open the box labeled Jerry Rockloff, and was rewarded with an envelope of coupons and an art supply catalog. Taking in the mail was a service Dan provided to Jerry, part of the complex balance of favors in their friendship. Favors that also included Dan's use of Jerry's couch. Dan employed the first key again to enter the lobby, essentially an enclosed courtyard between the apartment towers. It was full of a lot more old tile, plus former fountains that had been turned into planters, 
each beneath a wide skylight, currently dark. Dan thought, as he often did, that it must have been quite a place once, and imagined it being more elegant in its day than the one he had seen in his dream, the home of Abby and her father, Mr. Strauss, unknown people yet so familiar to him. But in the present building, in the present moment, although the floor, main windows, and commonly traversed surfaces were kept acceptably clean, years of grime had accumulated on every spot that was hard to get to or easy to forget about, and the apartments above had become a hive for specific sections of the urban working class, recent college graduates, slightly older creative types, and crowded families wherein the parents and older children worked for the lowest legal wage, willing to cram into small spaces as long as they were clean, well-maintained, and reachable for their jobs. Dan turned into the first alcove on the right and tramped up three stories featuring fancy but worn wooden railings and stairs covered by dark brown industrial carpet. He was zoning out again by the time he reached the door labeled 3A and used the third and last key on the subring to open it. It was dark inside, and Dan registered from various absences that Jerry was, as expected, still in Milwaukee. Dan turned on the light, revealing the central area in which the distinctions between kitchen, dining room, and living room were rather notional. He closed the front door and dropped the mail and the contents of his pockets on a low table in front of the patchy, burnt umber couch that promised him slumber. He turned off the ceiling lights so it was by the uneven illumination from the street lights beyond the open windows that he stripped down to his boxer briefs, thereby sparing those in the opposite buildings the sight of his young, rather lean body. Dan deposited the clothes in a laundry basket at the bottom of the closet. The few cubic feet the plastic basket took up was the only space in the apartment exclusively dedicated to his use. With effort, he then overcame his fatigue long enough to pull out a blanket, sheet, and pillow from the shelf just above the basket, take them to the couch, spread them out, lay down, and pull the blanket over himself. To prolong his wakefulness for anything else, for instance to brush his teeth, was unthinkable. He felt he'd done well to not just lie down on the hardwood floor as soon as the door was open. He closed his eyes, and very different dreams began. It seemed as if, every time he turned his head, he was somewhere new, the difference sometimes subtle and sometimes dramatic. He began in muddy villages surrounded by murky forests, alternating with glimpses of great stone edifices that would have towered over those forests, except that the forests were gone. The lower landscape featured only sparse greenery that looked like palm trees, dwarfed by groups of strange gray-green cones. The flashes were so brief that he couldn't register whether the cones were animal or vegetable, or whether the stone shapes were outlandishly huge buildings or unusually geometric mountains. After these glimpses, Dan would always return to the huts and the forests, and over time the houses became sturdier, then larger then progressed into young cities with their own stone monuments and horse-drawn wagons which became streetcars, motorcycles, airplanes. But none of these urban wonders matched the great pillars that continued to flash in between. In the cities, a torrent of people approached him with a variety of reactions, nodding, threatening, bowing, but each of them passed in a wearying, distracting blur. Then fences came up, keeping the people manageably away from him. Other people watched the fences, not realizing that their black uniforms made them manageable as well. 
Then it all exploded, and for a long time there was just a plain room with stone walls and a toilet in the corner, and a tiny window viewing a garden, and walks in the garden, carefully measuring out steps while others planted. Then there was a dingy apartment with white walls somehow more depressing in its three rooms than the cell had been in one. But then the blurred frenzy of motion began again. The cities were back, and looked more like the world Dan had known before the stream began. He saw traffic cones, and the way the cars obeyed the cones felt familiar. Then he saw something still more familiar. Himself, at age 14, in a neatly ironed suit. Left hand in Vanessa's dark flowing hair as they kissed, his right hand on her side, slowly sliding up the side of her blue dress while her forearms crossed behind his head to pull it painfully closer to hers. But unlike in other dreams, he didn't feel the pressure of their skulls smashed together or the warmth of her skin under the dress. It was just a picture. Then there was a sound. The first distinct sound Dan had noticed in this kaleidoscope. A passionate moan. But though it fit thematically, it took Dan out of the scene. Even if he or Ven had had their mouths free to make the sound they had not possessed the years of life it carried, there was a worldliness in the moan that even the intervening decade hadn't given to Dan— he had no idea what those same years had done to Vanessa, and with that thought, the dream fell away completely. Dan opened his eyes, back on Jerry's couch. The light from the windows, a general gray, indicated it was barely dawn. He could feel the familiar sensation of the sheet and blanket tangled around his ankles, his sleeping self having twisted out of them when some biological swing had overheated him. Generally, he equally unconsciously pulled them back over himself hours later, but this time he was already covered by the afghan that was usually draped over Jerry's easy chair to cover the cigarette burns and other bits of damage it had picked up over years of service. The afghan's unexpected presence caused Dan to linger in a delicious moment of feeling tended and cared for, a feeling he had missed since his split with Brenda. But the moment was brought short when the slightest hint of another moan reminded Dan that there was some mysterious human agency attached to this. People were engaging in recreational sexual activity in Jerry's room, he realized, and the moaning was an expression of their enjoyment. The second moan seemed a lot quieter than the first, but he theorized that this was because he was now awake. There were also other vague sounds. Words too distinct to ignore, too faint to interpret. Tantalizing, inviting analysis. Analysis including attempts to deduce Jerry's performance partner, which were quite possibly futile, as she might be someone new. But an intermittent sigh reminded Dan of Brenda's best friend, Joyce, and the noise she'd make after eating a particularly nice cut of barely cooked steak. Looking around, Dan saw new objects by the door— a messenger bag and a pair of old garment bags. Nothing he specifically recognized, but definitely Joyce's style. And putting the afghan on him would fit the vibrant goodwill he remembered her projecting out into the world, except for the parts of it that filled her with blistering rage. Dan checked his phone. 5.12 a.m. This meant he could sleep for a while, if he could actually get to sleep. The tantalizing mystery in the next room, and the unwelcome prickles of jealousy and injustice it evoked, promised to make that difficult. 
If only he could get a steady job, he thought, or at least put another grand in the bank, then he could think about finding a real roommate situation, one including his own bedroom and a door he could close. Until then, he resolved, he would adapt, and not blame more fortunate people for enjoying their lives. He fished his earbuds out of his messenger bag, put them in his ears, and instructed his phone to play a list of songs he had labeled Mellow. His head settled on his pillow of its own accord, and he drifted off to sleep before the first song was over. And dreams returned. Justin Brandt, 9.57 a.m. Cal Herndon Esquire looked worse than I did, as Raymond, the assistant office manager, led him to me. Not that I looked terrible but some combination of the night's indulgences, plus a week of accumulated sleep debt, had put me a step behind where I like to be. I couldn't blame any of it on Jaina, though. She'd been all smiles for breakfast and hadn't raised a peep about me having to go to work right away. She had weekends off where she worked, but she put in some all-nighters, so she knew we were from. Could be we were compatible, mostly. Could be I should lock that down while I could, and then... Maybe if we kept ourselves busy for a few decades, whatever incompatibilities we had wouldn't catch up with us before one of us died. But to be that busy probably required kids. And while kids weren't something I'd thought much about, I had picked up a vague sense that they were more trouble than you'd expect. And as I looked up at Herndon, it occurred to me that the Strauss case would probably support that thesis. Cal, I said, rising from my chair and stepping around my desk. Nice to see you again. Hi, Justin. Good morning. He said as he shook my hand as little as he could. The words dribbled out of him aimlessly, like he was shell-shocked. To some, this discomposure would have seemed natural. The case didn't look great for his guy. A file waiting on my desk when I came in had told me the basics. Jonathan Strauss had been arrested on the premises, and while he wasn't holding a weapon... His revolver had been found nearby, with all signs indicating that he had been the one to fire three shots each into Harrison and Abigail. Plus, he'd had no story at all, just immediately asked for his lawyer. And while doing that was his constitutional right, and a jury might never learn about it if I did my job well, it had no doubt convinced the police that they had the right guy. And that was never good. But Herndon wasn't the sort to let his client's woes get to him, at his level, he'd seen them go through a lot of ups and downs, and if he rode that roller coaster with them, he'd be twice a week on a therapist's couch in no time. Herndon was a survivor. But something about this was spooking him. Have a seat. What's the story? You'd better look at this first, he said, in his drip, drip voice, pulling multiple copies of a printed document out of his folio. It was a representation agreement making it official that I was his client's lawyer for this case. I raised my eyebrows. The usual reason for being so formal up front was that he was about to tell me something that shouldn't fall through the cracks of lawyer-client confidentiality. Nine judges out of ten would say I was Strauss's lawyer the moment Louise put me on the case, and now that I'd sent a text agreeing to take it, that rose to 99 out of 100. And in a murder case, that hundredth judge would probably get overturned on appeal. But Herndon was not leaving the hundredth judge to chance. So what he was about to say was explosive. Maybe explosive enough that they thought I might back out. Turned out they had reason. Skimming the front page as I sat down at my desk, my eyes went into complete focus as I read that I would not be trying the case, 
I'd be the advising counsel, assisting Papa Strauss, who was not a lawyer, to defend himself pro se. This wasn't just a tabloid dream of family murder among the rich. It had all the makings of a three-ring circus. I'd already guessed that the luridness was the reason Louise had given it to me. I was a good associate attorney with experience in criminal, but that's all I was. But now it seemed that, on top of being lurid, this case would take an undefined amount of time for an outcome beyond our control, so it absolutely required someone solid but disposable. And that was me. If I brought shame upon the firm, the partners could make a lot of it go away by firing me, and all it would cost them was a little severance pay. Of course, Louise's other option was to not take the case, but an exhibit attached to the agreement solved that mystery. Money. A very large amount of money. And it was no mystery that our firm could use some. A failed attempt to maintain a second office in San Francisco had sucked up a lot of it, and closing it had led some of our best lawyers to other firms out there, and sent some of our worst scurrying back to Chicago to hold on by their fingernails. The amount Strauss was paying could make Louise and her partners breathe a little easier. Of course, if I was willing to consider Louise walking away from the case, maybe I should consider it for myself. And just as I thought that, I noticed something I'd missed on my first skim. An additional six-figure payout to me personally, if I remained Strauss's advisor up to the verdict, or was fired without cause, regardless of outcome. And double that if doing the job required more than 500 billable hours, and again for each multiple of that, ad infinitum. And finally, an additional increment of the same amount, if engaging in this representation, caused me undue hardship. Whatever that meant. Not an unspecified bonus at the end of the year. Not points in some kind of benefit scheme. Not intangible extra consideration next time they chose a partner. Cash on the barrel head. On top of what the firm was paying me, for hours, I could fill in three months. If this thing blew up bad, and I spent years finding my next job, I might still wind up ahead. And that was the exact possibility they'd foreseen me foreseeing. After reading that clause, did I consider refusing the case? Not really. Imagined would be more accurate. I pictured a stern talking to from Louise and maybe some reluctant discipline, to show the consequences of saying no to her. Maybe they'd fire me then and there, and even if I bounced right back, I'd always be counting the money I hadn't made. But that wasn't what clinched it. It was wanting to know why. Why was so much money being spent to help a non-lawyer to most likely sabotage his own case? A case where his freedom was on the line. I couldn't walk away from that. Not when I was being paid to stay. I gave the money section one more look over, then signed and dated. That was it. I was on the ride. Keep your arms inside the car at all times. I handed half the copies to Herndon, and he looked visibly relieved. No mystery to why he'd referred this out. Herndon was a litigator, and probably the best criminal guy they had. But criminal wasn't a big area for Boehner and Jocks, and they had a bigger reputation to uphold than we did. However many millions they'd gotten from Strauss over the years, they'd willingly risk losing his business in order to stay out of this, especially since he was writing himself a one-way ticket to prison anyway. Thank you very much, said Herndon, his confidence back now that I'd taken Strauss off his hands. Then he pulled out a large Ziploc bag labeled Sensitive Information and put it on my desk. 
This contains a USB drive and a printed list of the files on the drive. The files contain all the personal information we have about Jonathan Strauss and absolutely everything we have about Abigail Strauss. We've only summarized the corporate information pertaining to Mr. Strauss because of our duties to the various corporations as clients, but details could be made selectively available as needed. And before you ask, we've checked our files, and we have no information pertaining to Harrison Reese. I nodded and slid the baggie over to my half of the desk. There's another thing you should know right away. Mr. Strauss is planning to stand mute. I didn't react much to this. I had already decided Strauss was a fruitcake, based on the little I knew about him. Refusing to plead guilty or not guilty seemed to fit. Does he have some objection to the investigation so far? Something constitutional? Herndon shook his head almost imperceptibly. He does not want to make any plea that might contradict his stance. His stance? I asked, not liking the sound of that. He has very specific things he wants to say about the deaths, and he will be asking you to help him structure his defense so that he will be able to say those things in open court. Beyond that, everything else is, in his opinion, um... Herndon stared at the ceiling, mouth open. He was uncharacteristically having to search his vocabulary. Secondary? Irrelevant, said Herndon, nodding with approval at having found just the right word. You have been listening to Legacy Door, Episode 1.2, Beginnings. Jamie Gosling was the primary narrator and us. Jamie Wren was Dan Lutcher and Cal Herndon. John Dre was Justin Brandt. The opening music was Ethereal Thoughts by Victor Wayne. The closing music is Deep Space Travel, also by Wayne. You can hear works by him at Toontank.com. The Legacy Door cover photograph is by Roxana Inash. This episode's cover image is Those Who Have Gone Before by Kevin Raleigh, a.k.a. Cavissimo. You can find images by him at DeviantArt and Cavissimo.com. Last episode, I promised a little more information about what exactly this is, which is an abridged serialized version of an audiobook done by a talented ensemble of actors. Although, unfortunately, you only got to hear a few of them this time, and there are a few you haven't heard at all yet. At least, not since Immunities. Speaking of which, one very familiar Immunities voice will come back in next week's episode, Needs, in which Dan tries to bring his waking life into focus, and the prophecies of us come closer to fruition. Now, the abridged part so far has mostly meant taking out some bits of the book that identify who's speaking or what they sound like when this is evident from the voices you're hearing, though I've also left some of that in when I felt it added something. I've also taken out some chapter headings and mood-setting song lyrics that I thought would be redundant with the episode intros, especially since in the podcast I can use actual music to set the mood. This is all going to come out in about 29 episodes, arranged in three seasons, with very brief breaks between the seasons, much briefer than the ones in Immunities, concluding sometime early next year. But if you'd like to either listen to the whole thing without my intros and outros, or just to support us, you can buy the entire unabridged audiobook at Audible and many other online retailers, or, for that matter, get the text version on Kindle or paperback. Meanwhile, if you'd like to comment about the series, express your interest, or just see what's going on, check us out as Legacy Door Novel on Facebook and Twitter, and some other social media options that I will talk about next time. 
But now, this podcast was made by Dueling Genre Productions, and Legacy Door is copyright 2021 by Bob J. Kester, all rights reserved. This is Bob J. Kester. Goodbye. Dueling Genre.